Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is lunchtime on September the 30th, and I think most of us are still reeling from the bizarre presidential so-called debate last night. One of the things that occurred to me uh, after watching it is who could possibly still be undecided after such a bizarre performance by the current President of the United States. One group of people who are indeed decided, or certainly more decided than anyone else, it seems, from the research I've been uh, reading, are African-American women. Uh, they are the ones, of course, who most of all, I think, elected or, or powered Biden to the nomination. And, and they are uh, a group of people in the United States who... Um, who vote more regularly and perhaps passionately than, than, than any other demographic. Uh, Martha S. Jones is the author of Vanguard, uh, a book about black women, how black women broke barriers, won the vote, and insisted on equality for all. Uh, Martha, what is it about voting that gets black women so infused, so engaged? Why do black women vote more than certainly black men or, or, or most other groups in this country? Well, in part because they are the community of American voters who waited the longest to get the vote. Um, it takes until 1965 for African-American women to come um, fully, completely um, to the ballot box in this country. And that means um, that there is still um, the living memory among African-American women of the era of disfranchisement um, and the sense, the palpable sense of how um, essential an instrument the vote is for wielding political power. Uh, this issue of, 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 of female, African-American female voting is very personal to you. You had a, a, an intriguing op-ed also, in addition to your book in the New York Times earlier this month, about whether your your grandmother voted, uh, a century-old mystery. What is that mystery, Martha, and, and, and why were you so engaged with it? I write in an office where my grandmother's portrait hangs on the wall. Um, and as I was finishing Vanguard, I became self-conscious. I didn't really know her story. Um, so I do what a historian might do, and I head to the archives to see what I can learn. And I come up short. Um, the records aren't quite there um, initially. Um, I almost think I'm going to strike out, but I fortunately find an interview with her she did in 1978, where she looked back on the history of voting rights. And most interestingly for our conversation, she didn't talk about 1920 and ratification of the 19th Amendment. She talked about the modern civil rights era, the 1950s and 60s, and how thrilling, as she put it, it was um, to be among African-American women who were um, on the streets, in the community, and part of the struggle for voting rights. 
And what was your conclusion? Did indeed she vote? And 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 and, and perhaps you might say something also about your great grandmother. Sure. Um, I discover her mother um, in 1920 in St. Louis, Missouri, organizing a suffrage school, um, which teaches African-American women how to organize, but also how to pass the um, racist laws, uh, Jim Crow laws that are aimed at keeping them from the polls. So her mother was a suffragist. Um, she was a young mother in 1920. Um, but by the 1950s and 60s, indeed, she is voting in her hometown of Greensboro, North Carolina. Martha, where do we begin this history of uh, African-American women uh, breaking barriers, uh, maybe not just winning the vote, but winning the right to, to speak? It begins pretty early, doesn't it, with this woman? It does, with Charina Lee. There she is, um, this portrait from her memoir, which she publishes in 1836. Um, I tell her stories of the her story of the first decades of the 19th century. Um, she's a preacher. Um, and some folks might think that's a, 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 an unusual place to start a, women, a book about women in the vote. But Jarena Lee really is someone who bequeaths to us uh, a political philosophy that um, bring African-American women into politics and all the way through that long struggle for voting rights. She is someone who, as she looks to preach the gospel, encounters both uh, discrimination based in race and discrimination based in sex. She decries both. And with that, we have the beginning of if you will, a set of ideals for American public life, including politics. And Jarena Lee is definitely one of the places that that begins. I've always been intrigued, Martha, by it seems to me a little bit of a contradiction between the fact that much of the liberating uh, passion within the African-American community comes from within the Christian church. But of course, uh, the Christian church was also the the ideology of the of the ruling white caste. How do you make sense of the relationship between African Americans and Christianity? We're looking at an image of the Bethel Amy Church in Philadelphia, which was Jarena Lee's home congregation at the beginning of the 19th century. And these are black Christians who are, in a sense, remaking in this example, the tenets of Methodism, um, making anti-slavery essential um, to Methodist theology, not peripheral um, decrying, not only decrying, but expelling slaveholders, forbidding slaveholders from joining the denomination, and most importantly for Black Methodists, um, opening the door, insisting upon a place for Black leadership within the Methodist Church. Um, this is a kind of revolution that happens in the early 19th century within uh, Methodist circles leading to the creation of distinct denominations like the African Methodist Episcopal Church, um, of which Jarena Lee is a member. What about this woman? Uh, um, uh, Sojourner Truth. Yes, a, a remarkable name and a remarkable history. What was uh, what was uh, Sojourner's Sojourner Truth's role in 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 um, in the, the, the voting struggle and the struggle for rights of, of not only of African-American women, but of African-Americans generally. Sojourner Truth had been uh, born enslaved at the end of the 18th century in upstate New York, not a place we always associate with mm. um, slavery, but um, in fact she was. 
Um, she uh, is uh, becomes free when New York abolishes slavery in 1827. Um, she goes on to live a fascinating um, and enthusiastic life. She's part of utopian communities, for example, um, everything from um, religious thought to diet and more. Um, but she comes to be a part of the story of Vanguard because Sojourner Truth by the 1850s will be one of the few African-American women who joins um, full-throatedly into what is a new emerging movement for women's rights in the United States. And she will, from the beginning, um, attempt to carve out a distinct place for African-American women's experiences um, as enslaved people, as workers, as well as, as women, um, and to um, help that movement um, to speak more fully to all American women and not simply for the interests of middle-class elite women. Martha, what was the role of, of, of African-American females in the colored convention? So the colored convention movement is the African-American, um, if you will, a, a shadow political movement um, in a period during which black Americans are excluded from party politics or excluded from um, the halls of Congress and state legislatures. Um, so here black Americans meet in convention locally, regionally, nationally. Um, these are the places where not only organizing happens, but the deliberation over the issues of the day, the establishments of new enterprises like um, schools and newspapers. And Black women start out at these conventions serving meals and attending to the needs of men. But by the 1840s, they now also seek a voice. They see seek a seat at the table. Um, they seek to be equal to their male counterparts, um, looking to contribute right, their unique talents and their unique perspectives to the ongoing work of anti-slavery and civil rights. And of course, we, in our narrative, get to the, the movement for voting. Uh, this woman in particular was an important figure in it. Uh, how do you treat the, the, the suffragettists in, in Vanguard, uh, both obviously white and black, and, and what was their relationship? It's a difficult relationship, and that is because um, at every moment over the long history of the suffrage movement in the U.S., um, there is a place for anti-black racism, whether it is the personal views of leading suffragists, whether it is part of a political strategy, um, or whether it is part of a bargain, um, ultimately, that is made um, the winning of a federal constitutional amendment for women's votes in exchange for um, the preservation of states' rights to disenfranchise Black women. Um, this is the image of Ida B. Wells, who was a journalist, uh, a great international um, anti-lynching advocate, and a powerful suffragist. Uh, Wells never finds a comfortable or easy um, alliance um, nationally with white women, though in her hometown of Chicago, she will be able to work collaboratively white, with white suffragists. And this is part of the um, uneven story of the road to women's votes in the United States, one in which the relationships between black and white women are very strained. Tell me a little bit about uh, Burroughs, another of these important figures in the movement. 
I have Any... a great quote from her to struggle and battle and overcome and absolutely defeat every force designed against us is the only way to achieve uh, stirring words. Nanny Helen Burroughs was a Washington, D.C. based educator who built her political platform in the Black Baptist Church. Um, millions of black women across the United States who come together in a black Baptist conference led by Burroughs and other remarkable women. Um, Burroughs' signature in the movement for women's votes is that she was always an advocate for working women, um, that she never saw the movement for women's votes as one exclusively to speak to the interests of educated or elite women. Um, she spoke forcefully and always made sure that the the interests of working women were on the table, ably representing those millions of Black Baptist women across the country who themselves are now fighting against racism, against organized Jim Crow, um, and are looking to get to the polls and to turn the tide on anti-Black racism. Uh, Martha, we had Carol Anderson, a friend of mine on the show. I know she's a colleague of yours. I'm sure you're very familiar with her work, speaking very passionately about what's happening today in contemporary America in terms of voting rights. Given the enormous effort and passion and heartbreak and inspiration associated with this demand for black women to, to, to win the vote, is there a particular resonance to all the debate now about, it seems, if, at least if you, if, if you believe what Carol is saying, uh, undermining that vote, taking it away, going back to Jim Crow in some form or other? Carol's work is so instructive to all of us about the long history of voter suppression. And the women I write about know that story well. Um, their votes are suppressed 100 years ago, despite a federal amendment. Too many Black American women, especially in the South, cannot cast ballots because of uh, laws and intimidation and violence. Um, I'm sure Carol would point out to us that here, sitting in 2020, we see um, the resurgence of forces that are eerily familiar to those of us who study women's votes 100 years ago. Again, the resurgence of voter suppression, the threat and the fact of violence and intimidation um, coming to the polls in this country um, now and in November. Um, the women I write about would understand this moment. They would say, two things. Um, one is um, politics is the ground game and we have to remain organized and attentive to all of the nitty gritty details about how to get to the polls, how to get there safely, how to cast those ballots and make sure they're counted. And at the same time, they would say we must speak to our highest ideals. We must speak about democracy, about equality, about justice and dignity, and the kinds of principles um, that the vote is intended um, to take us toward. Um, we have to do both of those kinds of work. The women I write about did that work 100 years ago. Um, and I think tragically, um, their lessons are profoundly timely. It is tragic and uh, very troubling that history seems to be repeating itself. Carol has argued, and again, I don't want to put words into her mouth, but she's written pieces suggesting that there's still a need, and, and I'm using her language, to denazify the South, to actually confront what happened in slavery and the ensuing racism in a post-slave America. Uh, it, 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 do, you, do you share that position that given that we 
we Americans or America cannot seem to get beyond its history of race and racism, how do we how do we go forward rather than going backwards? Well, I think we go forward in the way I suggested, which is, um, I think Carol is right, right, to call out, to document and call out as women like Ida B. Wells did in the early 20th century. You know, part of Wells's contribution is that people say there is no such thing as lynching, right? That it's, uh, it's myth, it's exaggeration. And Wills goes out to document that. And we know about the extraordinary um, political figures, including someone like Georgia Stacey Abrams, who are in the trenches documenting and teaching us, right, how voter suppression works in our own time. Um, and then what Wells would say is we need to know what to do on election day, um, and we need to do it um, in concert with one another to shield ourselves from violence and intimidation. We know we have to know what a poll tax is. Today, we have to know what voter ID is. We have to know what a literacy test is. Well, today, we have to know what exact match is. Um, so these are still um, the fundamentals of what it means to vote in a country that guarantees the right to vote to no one. I think that is the insight that many Americans are just waking up to that there is no promise um, that one can cast a ballot in this country and that still um, here we are in 2020 um, in order to cast a ballot, the burden is on us to do the work. That's all very well, Martha, but some people watching this might think, well, it's certainly true that, that there are racist legacies of the system, but to compare America in 2020 to the America of the 18th century uh, of uh, of Jarena Lee, a, a slave um, uh, in a slave system, would be absurd. Uh, could we argue that over the last two hundred years, some things have at least have been achieved in, in American history? I do think they have, and African American women provide us with precisely the evidence of that. Um, if we understand that Black American women were fully enfranchised as recently as 1965 in my own lifetime, um, and that today um, Black women are not only a force at the polls, which they are disproportionately, are not only running for Congress in record numbers, more than 120 Black women running for Congress this year, and that Senator Kamala Harris of California um, is leading the Democratic ticket alongside Joe Biden, we understand that much of what was intended in 1920, which was to keep Black women out of politics and away from power, um, that that view of the body politic, that view um, of this nation has certainly been defeated. Um, but is it enough? Of course it's not enough, um, because what we know is that for all that those kinds of accomplishments signal, um, it is still possible for this country to continue to backslide, to continue to practice voter suppression, that old American tradition of voter suppression, um, and to undermine um, the extraordinary achievements that Black women have wrought in a very short time. Finally, Martha, uh, what would you say to anybody watching this who's still undecided about the election, particularly African-American women, although I, I very much doubt there's any African-American woman who still isn't quite sure what to vote? I would, I would concur that I don't think there are African-American women who are likely undecided. Um, but I think 
the, the most important thing in this election is what we have said for generations in this country, right, which is that this is a moment to be engaged, to deliberate, whether it's in your church community, your club, um, your sorority, um, your community center. Um, this is the moment to deliberate, um, to discern, um, and then to do um, that very um, nitty-gritty work of making sure you get your ballot in hand, you cast it, and you pressure public officials to make sure that it um, all of that is our charge here in the fall of money. Well, there you have it from uh, from Martha, who uh, is is sending out her instructions on the upcoming election. Her book, Vanguard: How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All, is a central reading, I think. For all of us, it's a, it's a huge success. It's already sold out. So if you order it, be patient. Uh, in addition to Vanguard, Martha, I know you're quote unquote stuck in Baltimore uh, in these weird times where we're not supposed to go out or travel. What else should people be reading perhaps to prepare themselves for the election or to think or rethink American history? So I'm going to I'm going to share with you what's sitting right here at my elbow. Um, and I'm actually on my second read of this book. But this is Adele Logan Alexander's Princess of the Hither Isles. This is a, a gorgeous um, history biography of uh, early um, 20th century uh, suffragist um, Adele Logan Alexander's uh, grandmother um, and a story that is told partly through the history that I tell in Vanguard of Black women and voting rights pulled out of family lore um, and also a venerable historian's um, just um, sparkling imagination. So um, I'm going to read this um, for a second time this week and talk with my students about it um, when I see them on Monday. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.